Welcome to the latest episode of The Attic Sessions, number 14. And today we are joined by fiction writer June Caldwell. June, thanks for coming along. You're, you're very welcome up to The Attic. Cheers, um, thank you. And you are joining us just in uh, advance of the publication of your first book, which is a collection of short stories titled Room Little Darker, That's right. um, published by New Island Books. And uh, you, you've previously had a lot of um, success with publications in the Long Gaze Back anthology. Um, you've won prizes, uh, including the Moth International Short Story Prize. Um, but this is the first volume. This is, 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 is the first collection. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But, but you know, tell us a bit about how it all started. How, how did, you, did you get to the point where you're just about to publish a collection of, of stories. Writing, of writing in general or short stories? Writing in general oh, right. and then I suppose the short story. Yeah. Thing. Well like I suppose one of the mistakes I made like everybody who wants to be a writer you kind of set out in life and think how do I be a writer because you have to work at something don't you so I said right I'll go and do an arts degree and I'll become a journalist. I thought that journalism had something to do with writing it has nothing to do with writing so I really went on the wrong path that's first and foremost I became a journalist after college um, which I hated, and I was really ra I was really rubbish at it. But was it not good for deadlines? Because I it actually started as a journalist yeah. too, and and at least you you do learn how to kind of write to word count, write to <coughs> deadline. Well, you learn how to be terrified. You learn that you have to write within a short window, and no matter what you write, you know, to the best of your ability, it's going to get published on a certain day. Um, and yeah, and you, you get used to doing that, and you get you you also get used to kicking out copy that you're not happy with, okay. or you know, yeah. writing material that you don't particularly want to write. Like yeah. I was a, a lot of journalists now, they start off and they find a speciality area, which I think you have to do. We weren't advised on this. It should have been obvious, you know, but so I was kind of like a, a feature writer. I, I wanted to write human interest features, but you don't make a living out of spending a week interviewing somebody and carving up a wonderful feature that's going to be a half a page in the end and only pay so much. So I, I started writing human interest articles and then I had to kind of wander into doing the craft for f to make a living yeah especially when I had a little mortgage back in the boom yeah a hideous mortgage on a one-bed apartment in Smithfield so I had to start writing business journalism IT journalism writing supplements for newspapers all that kind of thing and you're churning it out yeah and then you just you're not in the mood to write you're not in the mood at night time to sit down and think how do I write a short story or how do I begin a novel and so I just, and it was really frustrating because I really did have an urge to write creatively mm -hmm. um, and I just never found found out, found the space to. So did you have to stop journalism in order well, to yeah, write I sold I sold my little one bed apartment very cannily about two years before the crash because I was writing a lot about property during the boom yeah. and I kind of knew it was going to go down and plus I just couldn't afford the mortgage anymore on a freelance wage. Yeah because you were constantly just terrified about paying it every month. Your your money wasn't in the bank at the same time every month and you basically had to ring around and put a gun to employers' heads yeah. to get your cash, which is the other really bad thing about freelancing. So yeah, I sold my apartment, moved to Belfast and I had a, b had a bit of spare cash, so I thought I'm not doing the journalism for a while. I'm not going to do it. I never really got back into it actually. Um, I thought I would just give it a miss yeah. for a while. A little break. And I, I got into the, uh, the master's programme in Queen's 
um, university. But I realized fairly quickly that, you know, writing journalistic tack for years on end does not make you a writer. And, you know, I hadn't really read an awful lot since university because I just was always so busy. I didn't have time to read. And then you're faced with the task of, you know, trying to kind of amalgamate a novel or come up with an idea and trying to write that way. And I just was making a mess of it. I just was mm. very confused. It's mm. a really weird um, bridge between nonfiction and fiction. Yeah. You know, but yeah. that's what that's when the whole blogging thing came in. Yeah. And because um, the thing about the degree based creative writing experiences, it can make you very self-conscious of what you're doing. Oh, it's dreadful. Yeah. yeah like it's re it's dreadful. It's a disgusting, horrible experience like um, being scrutinized in that way, being pulled apart. You yeah. know, the only good thing about it was I have to say the workshops where we peer grouped each other are really useful and helpful and they still are like to have to be part of a really good writers group mm -hmm. and to have different eyes on your work mm -hmm. looking at things that you may not spot is, is really really good but other than that no I hated it and it made me feel like I couldn't write I kind of left and thought right I can't write yeah. and I came back to Dublin then um, because well my mother was ill I came back I was kind of kind of came back to try and look after my parents because they were they kind of went downhill very quickly the two of them and uh, she had cancer and he had dementia and stuff. So I came back from Belfast and um, yeah, and I started volunteering at the Writers' Centre, the Irish Writers' Centre. Which is where we met. Yeah. yeah. And hats off to them. Like if you were a volunteer or an employee, uh, I was first a volunteer and later an employee, you could sit in on the workshops for free and they were brilliant because the tutors were so different to the ones at university who are probably career novelists who, you know, sit on their behinds and have a wage coming in. The tutors at the Writers' Centre really work hard at trying to get you to a different place with your fiction. They really push you. Um, and I found the short story courses there fantastic. I did Tales of the City with Sean O'Reilly and another 10-week one with Mike McCormick. Mm. And it just really kicked in then, um, kind of like how to go about it and what to do. That mm -hmm. I hadn't learned from my 5,000 quid MA, you know. And I remember you live tweeting a session by Claire Kilroy. At, no, Claire Keegan. Yeah. At one stage, I think another sort of uh, session on the on the short stories. So yeah. there was a sort of there seemed to be a, a natural um, blend between sort of doing these courses, but also being involved in the whole kind of communication of what writing was about. Because yeah. that was the other thing that I associate with you at that time that you were <coughs> blogging, you were writing about. Being a writer, you were like, you know, the writer in the world almost. Yeah, I, it was the recession. I was kind of chancing my arm. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> no, but like the writer center was great because yeah. I think a huge part of all of this is believing that you're a writer. Yeah. You know, I think the writing's probably 20%. The rest yeah. of it is that Taking the yourself Stalin seriously. on your shoulder shouting in your yeah. ear going, you can't do this, you can't do this, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think being around other writers, that became making it real for yourself, yeah. knowing what the craft is all about getting good tips on who to read and what to read yeah. like in the writer center i remember they had the the stinging fly anthologies were there on the counter um let's be alone together and i think these these are our, our little these little are our days or these are our lives oh, these are our, our lives. lives yeah and on the master's program as anyone who's done a master's will know you hear about the same dead bearded males over and over you know like i know Chekhov is great yeah he's brilliant he's born in 1888 and he died at 44 from TB, and that's an awful long time ago. And um, you'll still see on Twitter, you know, you'll still see writers, you know, Chekhov's um, tips for writing short stories. It's 2017, lads. 
we're virtually living on Mars. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, fair play to the great dead males. But like, I want to move on a bit and see what's relevant to my world now. Engage with the living craft. Yeah. And yeah. that whole thing, if I have to hear one more time about James Joyce and the dead and Chekhov and the lady and the dog, James Joyce and the dead, you know, is the best story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever. So yeah. what? Like, you know, so what? It's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the other thing about the Writer's Centre, I suppose, that you're doing courses during the day, but at night the <coughs> practitioners are coming in and doing readings and being involved in events. Yeah. And so you have this whole sense. So of you're soaked in it. Yeah. It's great. And yeah, so like, um, and then I picked up those two anthologies and I read some of the short stories and I was like, oh my God, this is so, these are brilliant. They're really funny. They're stories that are relevant to my experience, to the time I live in. You know, it isn't just the dead bearded yeah. males and yeah. the Ian McCunes and whoever else was on, which he, they, he was always on the uh, my my BA um, curriculum for the short story mm -hmm. and stuff. So there are these new new Irish writers and international writers that I hadn't heard of. Mm. And um, the stories blew me away. They, they entertained me. They made me think they were philosophically interesting. And I just thought, yeah, this is where it's at. I'd love mm. to write a bit of this, you know, mm. because before that, I thought, you have to write a novel, but you don't, of course. Mm. And short fiction is great for intolerant readers like me. You can really get in and out. You can get in and out of a head spin. Yeah. You know, in, in you know, ten, fifteen minutes before bed, and throw the book, yeah. you know, throw the book aside. So I started reading short fiction and then started writing them on those courses. Okay. So you know. so so what would you say was the sort of the breakthrough for you? Well, I I, I I'm so lazy. Like I was, first of all, I started just writing bits and pieces and sending them off for competitions. And I couldn't believe how easy it was to get long listed, yeah. you know, or short listed. It was really easy. Well, no, presumably only really easy if you write well. No, no, but like for, God, I can't say that, can I? For Irish, <laughs> for Irish competitions. I've never been, um, well, how long is a long list? Shortlisted for like English or international competitions. Oh, I have actually, what am I talking about? Yeah, I have now. Yeah. But yeah. no, in the beginning, it, I just found it impossibly easy and I thought oh my god and then I felt really shy yeah. and I'd run from it and go I yeah. can't believe that I got that far but I'd still no idea how to write a short story or yeah. what it meant to write a short but story. But hang on now you know I mean you were you were being appearing in shortlist like the the RTE uh, penguin competition weren't you? Weren't yeah you? yeah no, shortlisted for that yeah that was a piece the first piece I wrote was tw 20 minutes in an internet cafe I used to go to an internet cafe in Parnell Street and charge myself by the hour to write because I'm so lazy that if I sat at home, I wouldn't do it. But if it cost you? But if it cost me. <laughs> and I was like sitting there awkward trying to negotiate the space and the smell and the fact that there'd be like 20 or 30 people in the place at one time. And I didn't want to stay there that long. I'd only spend an hour or two and I'd have to write like the clappers uh -huh. with the earphones on and something on YouTube. So that worked for me. Yeah. You know, also a bit like being in a newspaper office and your deadline and having to. Yeah. So, so maybe it was. Putting a gun to your head. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all pretty much like that yeah. in a way. If you were given an, an infinity to write something, if you were given 10 years to write something, wouldn't you just sit on your arse for yeah, nine and no a half years? No, you absolutely would. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I started doing that. And then the ante room kicked in at the same time. Sinead Gleeson. Um, very kindly asked me to start writing for the Ante Room. Now, maybe give us a bit of the background of what the, the Ante Room was. The Ante Room was a feminist blog. Um, and this is when blogging was just, you know, really sexy and super cool back in 2011, where you could say what you liked and really get away with it. There wouldn't be so much trolling as there is now or accountability. And you'd never hear of anyone being sued. That hadn't started to happen yet. So it was a bunch of fantastic women like it was so so great to be part of it at the time there's about 15 or 20 of us mm -hmm. and it was building all the time mm. and 
Sinead did what Sinead and Anna did what Anna Carey did what no other um, newspaper features editor would be able to do and that's just pluck different really good writers from different parts of life so there could be you know a, a sports a sports sports person um, you know a science writer a housewife or whatever they didn't have to have any particular criteria mm-hmm. or qualifications that you'd get when you get people writing for newspapers um, Sinead would just spot something unique about them they could be an activist they mm-hmm. could be you know there were people who were visible on on Twitter who were opinionated you know um, and she picked me from my Facebook updates so this this was happening the same time as, as I was trying to write creatively and I found that brilliant that mix between creative nonfiction yeah it was a great bridge from ha- from journalism to creative nonfiction to the blogging to, to fiction so I found that a really good stepping stone kind of system because I remember of you know of at that time the Facebook updates were were startling frequently because you were so honest about caring for you know ill parents and and <laughs> the life that you were living and and it was as if you were not you were not going to sort of paint over any any cracks at all this was yeah. the way life was yeah, and that you did, were that did tell go it. against me a few times people use that against me a few times but anyway we won't go on with that but yeah no I mean in a way it's really super naive when I look back and think how mouthy I was I was using Facebook as cheap psychotherapy basically I could, can't afford a shrink yeah. what writer can yeah. and probably every writer should have one so I just used to get on Facebook every morning and just like spill my guts out and then I'd be like, grand, I can get on with the day now. And then I'd log back in in the afternoon and there'd be like 50 comments from people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and people write me messages going, fair balls to you for saying whatever, yeah. you know. But yeah. um, it's probably a bit crude to write like that. I wouldn't write like that now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I and still think that most of us kind of felt, gosh, yeah, that is actually what it's like in ways. Yeah, but you know, social media was like that in the beginning. And then this whole accountability thing kicked in where it's almost now you're almost kind of told it's like a mission statement or a lump of PR. Yeah. Anything that you write is yeah. accountable. Yeah. Um, it's open. It's open to criticism. It's open to being sued if you say something. It's just gone so. St- it's it's actually after flipping. Yeah. You know, its its original intention of free speech and expression has now turned completely the other way. So mm-hmm. I no longer feel comfortable doing that. My Twitter account's really boring now. It's just like retweeting other writers or links to short stories or bits from the New Yorker or whatever. I don't I don't get on there after drinking a welly of red wine anymore on a f- 11 o'clock on a Friday night and spill my guts out. I just don't do it anymore, you know. So where are you putting all that passion and energy into the short into stories? Into these stories, into these sick little stories, yeah. So, yeah, sorry, my answers are very long-winded. Yeah, so when I came to writing the stories for this book, um, it's really as a result of The Long Gaze Back. Yeah. Um, I was only asked to do the book last September and I had a couple of stories that were half written or first drafts and they were mainly um, stories that I was asked to do for events. So when you write something for an event to read out, you're only kind of writing an outline of a short story. It's not really intricate. You're writing something that's entertaining to read to a crowd. And I had done that for about a year, year and a half after I left the Writers' Centre to to look after my mother full time. Um, And that became a problem in and of itself because you're writing almost like it like as if it's a play you know it's kind of like um playwriting in a way and uh, then to try and turn them into more intricate complex short stories that would have you know two different stories going on or mm-hmm. binaries or whatever is more complex and i don't do a particularly good job of it i think that um uh, my stories are not traditional you know there there's nothing subtle i love short story writers who 
the entire story is about what's not said, you know, yeah. and you somehow you, you walk off from reading it real pensive and mm -hmm. scratching your head and wanting to have a walk in the botanic gardens. Like people are walking away from my stories having nightmares, do you know, but I love that. Now, two people wrote to me during the week saying that they're having nightmares after reading them. Well, <laughs> I was like, cool. Good, my job here yeah, is Yeah, so no, I'm not subtle and that really bothers me. You know, like I'm yeah. not subtle. The, the, there's an awful lot of aggression. Yeah. And kind but of. Maybe we're not in a subtle or, 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 or pacific age at the moment. And maybe that's yeah. what people need to hear. I don't feel that we are. I think that everything is very, very stressful. Yeah and very, very tense and on fire. And I think as well, we're expressing ourselves differently as well. You yeah. know, online communications, our chats, our IMs, our kick messages, our Instagrams, it's all gone, you know. Yeah. And there's a, there's a frenzied feel to communication that probably wasn't there even 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think I wanted the stories to kind of reflect that, so, yeah. you know. But before viewers get the impression that you, what you're saying about yourself <laughs> and your writing is, is true, the, the story in The Long Gaze Back is probably one of the only ones that got consistently rave mentions from the people who reviewed that anthology. Mm. Um, do you want to talk a bit about the background to that story? Yeah, well, th I think that's because the topic, it, the, it's more the topic than probably than the writing. I don't know. Well, I thought be, it was brilliantly written. That would be my objective view. Yeah. Um, and here, that's the thing, I think that you can, you can use fiction far more powerfully than journalism. Journalism is very restricting on what you can say and how you can say it. Yeah. Fiction isn't, you know, you can fool people by having a certain structure, but then you can drag them in yeah. and you can basically write anything you want as long as you, as you do it well. And so this, this is told in the, un, the voice of the unborn child yeah, of somebody. Yeah, it's told from a fetal perspective. Like in 2014, yeah. we were asked to write a story for the long gaze back. We were given nine months to do it. Um, and I wrote it the very last the last the last bit of the nine months let's say but at the beginning of the year there was a woman in texas who was had a brain aneurysm was found on her kitchen floor by her husband she i think she was about 17 or 18 weeks pregnant and their laws are very similar to the ones here right to our laws and she was brought into hospital the medical staff were told you know no we have to keep her alive there's a fetal heartbeat and she became this human incubator for this heartbeat that had no hope of ever yeah. being a human being right yeah. the baby was not viable it was never going to be viable and then the family had to go and fight for her to be taken off life support and what happens a lot of these women there's a huge difference between whole brain death whole brain death to, to an ordinary say coma situation where the body can be kept um, healthily alive until the person wakes up or until they never wake up right so Whole brain death means your body's kind of rotting. Yeah. Right? There's nothing they can do to stop yeah. the advance of yeah. rot. Okay, yeah. So they flood the body with somatic treatment, somatic medicines. That's why the, the and somat the also is. means um, body in Greek. So I kind of thought, right, I'm robbing that word to use it. And s lots of people thought it meant summit, you know, something. This is the problem with modern communication. They thought it meant like a, an incomplete yeah. thing, yeah. which yeah. I thought was great. It was a great kind of interpretation yeah. of a fetus that didn't make it, you know. Well, give, um, give the PhD students something to... Yeah, kind of they'd always find stuff that, that are, well, that is just yeah. not true. Yeah. That sounds quite philosophically sexy when, you know, so when, when it's published. So, yeah, so I, I was really angry. There was an Irish case similarly at the end of that year, very, very similar. The family had to go to court for eight weeks, battle to get the woman taken off life support. I just thought how Frankenstein and disgusting, yeah. how freakish and revolting. How can we do this to people? 
the Irish woman actually had an open wound in her head that was like they couldn't let her kids in apparently towards the end to see her. I mean, revolting mad stuff, you know, all mm. because of a heartbeat. Mm. And Savita had already happened. Mm. We'd already had the Savita mm. um, tragedy mm -hmm. and they still hadn't learned. And then you're th kind of thinking, oh, my God, like you could end up in that situation and be at the mercy of the opinion of the people who are, you know, mm. the religious kind of um, kink of the people who are actually treating you. Mm. There's no real um, structure here to how to go about it. And then you're hearing now that, you know, sneaky abortions do take place in hospitals that. So, you know what? We need to change the legislation. We yeah. need to we need to have a referendum on this and we need it to be very, very clear that in this day and age when we're getting ready to kind of, you know, live on Mars and do all this wonderful stuff. We can't, you know, we can't allow women to be kept in these medieval freakish states sure. um, in, in under appalling conditions with their families suffering madly. So I wanted, I was so angry, I wanted to write about it and I thought, I can't write it from the woman's point of view. I originally kind of thought, right, I'll write her voice in a coma, you know. And I thought that would limit me because this woman had wanted the child so much yeah. and she had two previous kids. And I thought, what could she tell me, you yeah. know? Then I thought about a doctor, his view would be limited because he's restricted by the yeah. legislation. I thought about writing it from a journalist hack point of view because that could be really ugly writing from what they want to try and get from the story. Yeah. And then I thought, no, the only person here is, you know, the, fo the focus the is on the person, yeah. on the unborn. Yeah. And then, you know, then it was like, well, I write it. How do you write from a fetal perspective? How do you make the voice authentic? The voice is not authentic. It's, it's very adult and then I, you know, I break it up here and there using kind of bits of baby language, but really it's, it's, it's an absurd voice. Yeah. But it, for me, the baby could see everything that was going on, yeah. you know, unrealistically so. Could add it. But, but it, it's sort of because it's all about competing ideas of identity. Yeah. You accept the voice because, you know, why not? We don't, you know, we can't know. Mm. Um, so you you know you this is as as possible as feasible as sort of a, a, a voice as any other and what i also really liked about the story was how well you just showed these competing agendas all these you know different people with a stake yeah in the poor woman's future know, you know it's horrible ideally because we were we were restricted to a three thousand word limit obviously because it's for an anthology yeah. and i think that that had an impact on how i wrote it because i thought right just do a trajectory of horror yeah. Just do snapshots of different people, you know, yeah. because I would have loved it to have been twice that length and gone into some of the more complex twists and turns. But there wasn't that room. Mm -hmm. And in a way that probably works better, you know. Yeah, no, it's in, it's intense. And New Island c came to you basically to say, do you have a book? Yeah, no, well, at, th at that time, kind of um, the, st the story got a lot of a, a lot of air and um, was talked about quite a bit. But then nothing really happened after that. Um, and I wasn't really writing very much for a while because um, stuff was going on at home, yeah. the care situation at home. Yeah, so no, they c they came last autumn and said, have you have you got anything? And, you know, I didn't, not really. I had a couple of stories, some of those stories that I, I had written for performances that I knew could be made into short stories. And I had some ideas I wanted to write. But they very kindly kind of took me on in blind faith, which is brilliant. It doesn't happen anymore, yeah. does it, that a publisher will come and say, yeah. you know, you can have X amount of months. And yeah give us some stories at the end of it. So like fair play to New Ireland, they took a big risk doing that. But the pressure must have been enormous. The pressure wasn't so bad. It was, yeah, okay, well, the pressure was a little bit bad, but I had a breakup. I had a relationship breakup in the middle of it. <laughs> so that, that was bad. But that gave you material? 
No. How could it? I just sat in my arse for two months going, oh my God, I can't believe he's gone. It's like, yeah, no, I couldn't write. Yeah. Trauma and me, you know, if you don't work very well, it, like it's grand afterwards, you can look back and make use of your craziness. But at yeah. the time, you're incapacitated. Yeah. So that didn't help. Um, so I wrote quite a lot in October, November. I didn't really write for December and January. I wrote February, March. I had I had older stories that I yeah. reworked. Ideally for a collection, I would have liked it to have been all new work. But then when I went back and looked at the old stories, because I wanted the book to kind of be a hats off to the disaffected. Do mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. wanted it. It's called Room Little Darker. And I wanted it to be about dark characters yeah. or dark situations, you know, like... We all love sane people. We want sane people to be in the passport office when we need something done, you know. <laughs> we want them at the helm. They of have anything. their uses. Yeah, bureaucratic or infrastructural, you know. Yeah. But, but like, who interests you most? Um, you know, wh when human beings fail, you know, when they act out and flail about and go mad, that's where we learn most about ourselves. That's yeah. where, what, where we learn about living. And I wanted to have a look at those junctures, you know, kind of the disaffected. Um, and I realized a lot of the older stories that I had started to write or wrote outlines of were, were fitted in with mm, that. Mm, mm -hmm. And then the new ones kind of, you know, got a bit crazier. Yeah. In the, in the time that I wrote them, they got a bit crazy. Yeah. So when it all came together, the stories looked like they were deliberately done to a theme. And they are. But yeah. it, it kind of came together better than I thought it would have. And, yeah. and do you want to talk a little about the process of, you know, you then you have the the draft yeah it goes to the publisher and presumably there's an editor who's assigned to you yeah well i have to say i did i did um the stinging fly six month um short story course six month fiction writing course with sean o'reilly so we were all working on that together and you're you're peer grouped yeah um, as well as him being very critical which he is he's great but you also have other eyes on the stories um and people spotting things that you wouldn't spot and then i'm also in a writer's group we meet every two weeks in Brooks Hotel and they're fantastic. They're really going on top of their range. So everybody, everybody had, had eyes on the stories yeah. and would say, you know, come up with something or say, you know, that really doesn't work. And I don't understand the, the, the character's intentions there or whatever yeah. else. And you're forced to look at it that way. Yeah. So there wasn't a huge amount of drafts. So by the time that I sent them in to Dan Bulger at New Island, they would have been fairly well on. But they, weren't, they weren't in any way perfect, but he was absolutely brilliant. Um, he is that really strange mix of so polite and gentlemanly and yet really tough. Yeah. I don't know how he manages that because normally people who are really tough and mean, you end up screaming at them. Like we didn't have one argument. It was just all very kind of gentle conversations. Yeah. And he asked very, very important searching questions. And he also had the guts to say, look, I don't think this one works. You know, I did end up pulling three stories that were too surrealist or too absurd. Yeah. And I think the book is better because of that. I think if they were in it, it would have dragged it down a little. And he made those decisions, you know. Yeah. And how many um, stories are, are in it? Um, there's 11. They're kind of like, they're 11. They're kind of like fat stories. Yeah. They're like five, between five and 6,000 words. Yeah, well, like there's okay. no babies in there of 2,000 So it's, it's a novel length, really. Yeah, kind yeah. of, what, what would it be? It'd be 55, 60,000 yeah. words, yeah. yeah. Um, I had wanted 14 stories originally, or 13, because that's kind of an ugly number, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm really happy with the 11 that are in there. I'm yeah. happy that they're as okay as they as are. They are. Now, you did bring something along, maybe, to read yes, from? Yeah, yeah, I'll read from one of them. I won't read from one of the um, really disturbing ones. Okay, and hopefully the computer hasn't gone off. And You're all right, let's have a look. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, it hasn't. So... 
Yeah, so one of the stories is about, it's called The Imp at the Perverse, and it's about um, a student who gets obsessed with a lecturer, right? But the beginning of it's quite poetic, I think. It doesn't, it doesn't get mad later on. All the people in these stories are in a predicament. They're in a predicament where they're not coping with something. So I'll read from the beginning of this a story called Imp of the Perverse, and it's written using the structure of Edgar Allan Poe's Imp of the Perverse, oh, okay. his original short story. And I've robbed a few of his sentences throughout the story in there, but it, you can't really tell which is which. So um, I'll read from the beginning. We'd been in a doorway in a bad part of town after some module or other finished up. And I said to him, open up your coat there and let me give you a hug. It's Christmas, let me in. I'd really like to give you a hug. And now that we're here, thanks so much for all your help. I mean it. No one knows their shit quite like you. Oh, and I bought you some socks with Edgar Allan Poe's face all over them. They made me laugh, kind of funny but disturbing. Hope you don't mind me saying that, do you? You're not going to take offence. He had a reputation um, for being really savage if disrespected. He had a reputation for brute violence as well as epic romance. He had a reputation, this fucker. He'd got us to read The Imp of the Perverse as part of the American Literature module, all about primitive urges. Impulse increases to a wish, the wish to a desire, the desire to an uncon uncontrollable longing, and the longing to the deep regret and mortification of the speaker, and in defence of all consequences, is indulged. Now I knew he couldn't stand me, but I also knew he knew I wanted something else from him, and everything had that awkwardness, that buttermilk sky feel to it. I couldn't even look into his eyes for long, there was just a lot of pressure there. I knew damn well he wouldn't piss on the likes of me. It was all high-end looks with an asshole like that. Pure glass women reflecting back his lack of lacking if they were beautiful enough. Oh God, yeah. Nurse mating him at academic conferences. Pop star syndrome or whatever the fuck. He had a load on the go. Well, he had the choice to have a load on the go being who he was. Everyone talked about it. How many does your man need? Jesus, they must bump pubic bones with the turnstile coming and goings. A man like that, he must have to move house often. How does he get a proper rest? Fair play to him though, fair balls to him. We weren't too long in that doorway when he said, we should move to another around the corner away from the bar where all the other students were drinking. A minute's privacy, ide fixe, and I got a bit giddy and said, okay, so okay, let's do that, let's go. In the other doorway he said, you really are very annoying but heaps hilarious, so don't lose that. Humor's bloody important in this game. He opened up his coat, and in I went, arms right around his pure wool jumper, nice and roasty with the, si with the wind swirling and swooshing, him clasping me back nice and tight, the two of us, our broken breath, you could hear it in the doorway there. It was so quiet I could feel the brick watching us, passing beams of buses poking yellow fingers into our hair, his hands moving up a bit behind my back, not so much rubbing but patting, which I thought was a gas metaphor, but then his nose went down a bit and mine went up a bit and I kissed him on the neck. I may have actually licked him on the neck, to be honest, I was so nervous. His skin warm and lovely like a chicken's out of the oven. I said, you smell nice, and he sort of smiled as his nose went down again. And well, I think he moved his hand up under my chin to raise me to him, and then that was it. After all this time, this imagining, this critical kiss, not sloppy, which I'd expected. Stupidly tender, actually, and really toasty. Mad stuff, slow and soft, too. Oh, Christ, can I say it? There was love in it, yes. A small snip of love that no one would ever get to find out about. He kept at it there with me. He didn't let up. 
small persistent pecks, then his lips rolling and lolling without moving off mine, very concentrated, yeah. His lovely butterball tongue pushing into my mouth as he kept circling my lips, hands moving at a different pace in under our coats, holding me to him. Fuck, it was good, like totally good. I began to crimple a bit, buckle. I wanted to say, you're making me faint, chloroform tongue. Oh, Mr. Chloroform. Instead, I said, finger me right now, it'll be so 80s retro. I was trying to lighten the load, rid some of the fizzy tension between us. When the air hit my crotch, I realised how cold it was out there in the steel breeze of December, how clammy I was down there in satin knickers bought in May, screamed the worm and the toad we did. When the muffled moans came, he sniggered like he'd achieved something. He had me. This man who'd go on to tell people how much he detested me, yakking in dusty pub corners about how mad I was, glaring across rooms and up stairwells, or trying hard not to look at me. The man, I'd tell everyone, including university staff, was a cold, heartless wanker. This letter from him saying, please leave me alone, please. In that doorway, we were happy. It didn't make sense. Wow. Wow. Sorry, there's loads of swearing no. in that. And I said I'd read something that wasn't swearing. We have very grown up viewers. On, Sorry about that. On, on, there's like uh, obscenity throughout this book. And <laughs> I thought that was a, a pe section that didn't have very much. Um, but it's got atmosphere. Okay. It's got great description. It's, it's <coughs> amazing. Really Thank amazing. You. She's starting to kind of get obsessed with him. That's the beginning yeah, of it. Yeah, I was beginning to sense that maybe the narrate, narrator was a little bit on the unreliable side. Do you, do you mm. like that? I love that. Unreliable narrator I idea. I love that. I know it really gets on people's nerves, but I think it's great. Because when you start to read something, you start, you start off with the, all this kind of confidence and justice in it, thinking that what you're reading is true. And then it's great to have to mess with that. Yeah. And to mess with the reader's head. Yeah, absolutely. I, re I remember sort of <coughs> reading... Kashigiru, I can never say his name. I know, yeah, neither can I. The Remains of the Day Fella. Oh, yeah. And uh, just, you know, listening to this <coughs> this butler narrating his story and then slowly, mm. gradually realising, oh, hang on, his oh, father's no. dying upstairs while he's going on, giving out the, you know, the wine and the canapes to the guests. There's, um, so I think he can really do extraordinary things with that particular approach when you... Mm. You want to shake your reader up and, and make them question their their uh, perceptions. And, and uh, certainly that came across really strongly there. So so do you think all of the stories have some element of, of people in crisis? Or yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Like th this gets madder and madder and madder. In the end, well, not in the end, I'm not giving anything away, but she turns him into an, an animal in her head to be able to cope with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this turns into... A, a crazy kind of almost anti-fairy tale. Um, there's other ones like there's one where it is, it, it's about a robot that's developed for pedophiles to, to live with instead of so that they leave kids alone and it's all about him and the robot back in his flat in mm -hmm. Capel Street and you know it, that's really disturbing to read because by the time you get to the point where he's with the robot kid in the flat you've come to know him very well so it, it it's, it's more subtle. Mm than some of the stories, but it disturbs you. The mm. scenario disturbs you, because that's where we're going next, you know? There's another story about um, a contraceptive implant um, spying on a couple's breakup. Yeah, the theme of breakup is in there, guys. And uh, there's kind of Frankenstein's mentioned quite a few times throughout yeah. the book, you know, because there's all that horror about modern technology and how it's impacting on our lives. And um, 
Yeah, and a couple of the characters are mentioned in different stories. There's some little crossovers as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. that have been sneakily done, mm. you know. So, so is there a chance that some of these might appear or reappear in later work? Like, you know, what, what having sort of put everything you've got into this over the last sort of, you know, year, year and a bit, year and a half, the, all of your writing life, how are you regarding what comes next? Yeah, I, I kind of consider this finished. Yeah. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, so uh, what I want to do next is get on with a, a novella, a novel. Well, a novella, I'd like to try and do it more condensed as a novella um, that I tried to work on during the Masters that I really hadn't got a clue how to handle. And it was a story about one of Ireland's, loosely based around one of Ireland's missing women. Do you remember the whole missing yes, women I thing do, in the yeah, 90s? Yes, I do, yeah, absolutely. So it's a story told from the dead with a twist. Yeah. No, it's not it's not a crime book or a thriller, it's more literary fiction yeah. kind of yeah. So it would be and I'm now thinking I might try and do it in short stories, loosely, not you know, like four or five chapters that are connected oh, that, okay. that could be yeah. seen on its own. Yeah. I love hybrids. I love the way that um people are messing around there yeah. with fiction and non fiction and with form. Yeah. So I'm gonna have a look at that. That's what I'm gonna like hop on next. You make me think of Mary Morrissey's Prosperity Drive, which is sort of like yeah, a series of great yeah, great, right, really. great stories, but yeah. you know, it's all the one the one road. Yeah, uh, but you know, different people's lives, different different people's um, experiences. So I want to leave the short story alone for a while. I feel traumatized after it. I do. I love it, but I'm like, yeah. oh god. You know, yeah. I really want to try and do something yeah. different next. Yeah. yeah. And so I will go for a novella next. You know, um, that's the plan. It's to keep going up and trying different things. Then I'll probably do a big novel after that, and then I'll probably never write again or something like that. There's all this pressure now as well to keep writing. Yeah. Kick a new book out every every year or two. You know, what yeah. Flaubert wrote, what, four books in his entire yeah, life? Yeah, in his entire life. Yeah. And now we're kind of compelled to, you know, write yeah. four every five years. It's not happening. I'm going to take as much time as I need to write something good. Okay. But I'm going to have, I'm going to contradict myself and say I'm going to have all my babies very quickly. I'm going to do the next one quite quick as well. Now that the fervor is, is hitting me, is yeah. in, you yeah. know. Well, I'd say there'll be a demand. I'd say there'll be a, a big demand for uh, more more from you when this is out. Thank you. And uh, it's uh, <coughs> appearing in the shops from the end of May, is that right? Yeah, the launch is next week in Hodges Figgis on the 31st of May at 6 p.m. Not the usual 6.30 slot, 6 p.m. And it'll be in the shops from that day. Yeah. And it'll it's, its official publication date is the 1st of June which is after my namesake, even though I was born in March. Well, keep an eye out for that. It's going to do extraordinary things, I'm quite sure, based on <coughs> what we've heard. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Cheers, um, thank I you. I hope it all goes brilliantly well, and I'm very sure it's going to. Thanks so, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Netza. So thank you um, to June for joining us in the attic. Um, we'll be back again in June, in the month, as opposed to the person. Um, and um, goodness knows who we'll be talking to then. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I know that I'm just a dreamer. I dream because it's the closest I'll ever get to you.